I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the July 4th, 2022 issue, Season 2, Episode 7. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together each week not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect on how all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past. And we'll reflect together on where we're heading as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. And today we'll talk about eight interesting studies from the past several months. We'll begin by talking about the relationship between smoking and hair loss, a helpful review study which just reminds us of some very important principles. And then we'll talk about something which you may not have heard about, and that is the floppy iris syndrome. The floppy iris syndrome is most common with some prostate medications, tamsulosin, but it can occur with finasteride, which of course we use for androgenetic hair loss. So the floppy iris syndrome is a potential complication that occurs during eye surgery, especially cataract surgery, and we'll talk about this subject. Then we'll talk about some studies in alopecia areata. We'll talk about alopecia areata and the relationship between alopecia areata and eye diseases. On the very first episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, we talked about the increased risk of retinal diseases in patients with alopecia areata. Today we'll talk about a new study which addresses this very issue. Fascinating study which really points to alopecia areata as a systemic disease and a number of issues which we need, need to be aware of. And then we'll talk about methotrexate for treating pediatric alopecia areata, especially the advanced forms. For advanced alopecia areata, we have oral steroids, sometimes topical steroids, but they often aren't effective. We have methotrexate and we have increasing studies looking at the use of JAK inhibitors. How good is methotrexate? What do we need to know? We'll spend some time looking at this important subject. Methotrexate has been around for 30, 40 years, so a very long history of this drug, which puts it front and center in advanced cases of alopecia areata in children. We'll take a look at this important data. Then we'll talk about upadacitinib, a JAK inhibitor in alopecia areata. We've spent a lot of time talking about baricitinib, tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, these are the best studied JAK inhibitors in alopecia areata to date. What about upadacitinib? We've got all these JAK inhibitors in the pipeline waiting to be studied in alopecia areata. And the next many years are going to be a very important story of JAK inhibitors 
And so upadacitinib has come on the scene now in alopecia areata. So let's take a look at the first four studies that have been published. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin by talking about androgenetic hair loss, specifically smoking and androgenetic hair loss. A nice study published in the International Journal of Trichology addresses the relationship between smoking and androgenetic hair loss. And so the authors of this study sought to review the literature looking at the relationship between smoking and hair loss. The authors remind us of six important principles by which smoking may cause hair loss, both by the action of nicotine and by other chemicals which are in smoke. The authors remind us that there may be vasoconstriction which occurs from smoke metabolites, DNA damage that occurs, oxidative stress, enhancement of senescence of hair follicle cells, microinflammation which facilitates perifollicular fibrosis, desensitization of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and hormonal changes, including reduction of estrogen and increasing androgens. And together, these six mechanisms are thought to facilitate the development of hair loss. And so one of the earliest studies was a 1996 study by Mosley and Gibbs, titled Premature Gray Hair and Hair Loss Among Smokers, A New Opportunity for Health Education? Question mark. So this was one of the very first reports that meaningfully looked at the relationship between smoking and hair loss. The authors studied 606 patients, 268 males and 338 females, age 30 and over, that were visiting a surgical outpatient department. It was a three-month study. The authors found that patients that were smokers had a nearly two-fold greater risk for hair loss than non-smokers. The authors of that study also showed that smokers had a approximately fourfold increased risk of gray hair and early graying compared to non-smokers. In 2007, another very important study was published by Su and Chen. This was a study from Taiwan, whereby researchers examined 740 male patients between the ages of 40 and 91. The key conclusions of this study were that smokers had worse androgenetic hair loss compared to non-smokers. Smokers had a nearly two-fold increased risk of having moderate to severe androgenetic hair loss compared to non-smokers. And smokers were more likely to develop early-onset androgenetic hair loss. And so after that, there have been a number of studies over the last decade or so looking at the relationship between smoking and hair loss. Studies in 2012 and 13 by Gatherwright, studies in 2016 by Park, 2017 by Fortes, 2019 by Vora, and 2021 by Salem. And the message of these studies is that smoking seems to impact androgenetic hair loss. Smokers are more likely to develop androgenetic hair loss, especially earlier onset androgenetic hair loss. Other factors may cooperate with the process of androgenetic hair loss in smokers, especially obesity. And so 
Individuals who smoke and are obese are at even greater risk. The authors of this review remind us that not all studies in the medical literature show that smoking increases the risk of hair loss, but the vast majority of these studies do. So from smoking, let's turn to the floppy iris syndrome. And a nice study in the International Journal of Trichology titled Finasteride and Floppy Iris Syndrome, What Role Can the Dermatologist Play? And so the iris is the colored part of the eye. Some of us have blue eyes, some of us have green eyes, some of us have brown eyes and hazel eyes. This is the iris. Muscles in the iris control the pupil. And the pupil is that small black opening in the eye that lets light in. Intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, IFIS, was described in 2005. It's a complication that can occur during cataract surgery, specifically the extraction of the cataract. Chang and Campbell published this landmark study in 2005 in the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, whereby they described tamsulosin, which is known by the popular name Flomax, which is a prostate drug to facilitate urination. But the 2005 study by Chang and Campbell described intraoperative floppy iris syndrome with tamsulosin. And since that time, a number of other medications have been suggested to cause intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. So what is this syndrome? Well, it's a syndrome whereby the iris, that colored part of the eye, becomes flaccid and it swells outwards in response to increased intraocular pressures. And it can prolapse through surgical wounds. And it leads to a progressive intraoperative constriction of the pupil, despite every attempt to stop the pupil from constricting. So these are the three features of the intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, IFIS. So it's not really clear why IFIS occurs. There's many, many factors that have been studied and are thought to increase the risk, including age, gender, hypertension, these alpha-1 adrenergic receptor agonists like tamsulosin and others, finasteride, angiotensin receptor inhibitors, benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, and various hypertension drugs. Tamsulosin is the most famous of these causes of IFIS, and for some time it was quite controversial whether finasteride truly was, and various reports throughout the last 15 years have suggested, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. But several studies have shown with multivariate analysis that finasteride kind of stands up by itself as a risk factor for IFIS. The very first study implicating finasteride came in 2007, about two years after that Chang and Campbell study, and that was by Issa and Dagres in the same journal. So there's still a lot of unknowns about this IFIS syndrome. We don't really know what to do with this information. Does the one milligram dose have the same risk as the five milligram dose? 
Men with prostate enlargement use tamsulosin. Men with prostate enlargement use 5 milligrams of finasteride, often known as the trade name Proscar. Does the 1 milligram dose have the same risk? We really don't know. Should we be stopping the drug before cataract surgery? Well, we don't know. Most surgeons don't. For tamsulosin, this most famous drug associated with IFIS, stopping the drug doesn't really have a huge impact. Might slightly reduce the risk of IFIS, but not a huge, not a huge risk. So most surgeons don't recommend stopping finasteride before surgery. And so it's really not clear if stopping finasteride can reduce the risk of IFIS or if there's things that can be done intraoperatively to change the course of successful cataract surgery in patients with finasteride use. This is an interesting study. We don't talk a lot about IFIS. It's a concept that is important to know about as we acquaint ourselves with all the potential side effects of the medications we use. I think it's important that all patients undergoing any surgery advise the surgeon of all the medications they're on, and that certainly includes finasteride. And many patients say to me, you know, I'm going for this surgery or that surgery. Do I need to tell the surgeon I use minoxidil? Do I need to tell the surgeon I use finasteride? Do I need to tell the surgeon I use clobetazole or ketoconazole shampoo or zinc purathione shampoo? The answer is yes, you should convey to your surgeon all of the medications you take. It's up to them to say, thanks very much for giving me that information. That is not necessary for you to tell me all that. That's up to the surgeon to tell, and that's fine. But I tell my patients to share with the surgeon everything. Vitamins, supplements, topical medications, oral medications related to hair loss. Tell them everything. And this is one such example with the IFIS syndrome with finasteride. So let's talk about alopecia areata. First, we'll talk about alopecia areata and eye diseases. Fatty Parthri published a nice study in JAD in June. And it builds on some other studies that we've talked about. In fact, in the very first episode of the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, we talked about a study by Ting and colleagues, which was a study from Taiwan which set out to look at the relationship between alopecia areata and retinal diseases. And in that study, we talked about 9,900 alopecia areata patients, 9,909 alopecia areata patients, who were compared to 99,000 controls. And in that study, by Ting and colleagues, there was a fourfold increased risk of retinal detachment in patients with alopecia areata, a 2.45-fold increased risk of retinal vascular occlusion, and a 3.2-fold increased risk of retinopathy. So an accumulating amount of evidence that alopecia areata seems to be associated with some eye diseases. A new study in JAD looks at, again, this relationship between alopecia areata and eye diseases. The authors analyzed an electronic health record system over a 10-year period. They evaluated 435 patients with alopecia areata and compared data to 35,000 controls who didn't have alopecia areata. 
The alopecia areata group was slightly younger than the control group, 41 years versus 50 years. There was no statistically significant difference between gender representation in males and females. So what was the data? What was the results? Do patients with alopecia areata have an increased risk of eye diseases in this study? The answer is yes. A 1.7-fold increased risk of retinal disorders, a three-fold increased risk of keratitis, iridocyclitis, 4.3-fold increased risk, scleral disorders, 6.2-fold increased risk, conjunctivitis, a 4.5-fold increased risk, an almost three-fold increased risk of lacrimal disorders, and an almost five-fold increased risk of eyelid inflammation. Data here again that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for various eye diseases. I think this is really important. It really points to alopecia areata as this systemic disease, and it does affect the hair follicle, and that's certainly where the hair clinic views alopecia areata as, but alopecia areata is a very complex disease. It is a nail disease. It is an eye disease. It is a multi-system condition. It is a system associated with heart disease. And so whichever perspective you want to view it from, I think we have to respect that alopecia areata is this systemic condition. If you're a cardiologist, you might see alopecia areata as a cardiac disease, whereby patients develop nail diseases, hair diseases, eye diseases, and other diseases. If you're a world nail expert, you might see alopecia areata as a nail disease that affects the hair follicle, can sometimes increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, and sometimes increase the risk of eye disease. This study tells us if you are an ophthalmologist or an optometrist or an eye specialist, but alopecia areata is a potential eye disease with these other issues that can occur. So we need to view alopecia areata this way. I think this is really, really important. The systemic features of alopecia areata are, are really important to know about. The authors of this study point out that there's a lot of relationships between the inflammatory eye diseases that can occur and alopecia areata in terms of the genetics, the pathogenic inflammatory changes, environmental triggers, they are very much related. And an overriding message here is that patients with alopecia areata that tell us about eye symptoms need to be taken seriously. And if there are persisting symptoms or symptoms that are troublesome, I think it's really important that we get our eye colleagues on board, whether an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, to help us. Patients with vision issues, patients with dry eyes, patients with uh, other issues of the inner or outer parts of the eye. I think these are important issues, and this study reminds us that the eye diseases are very important for us to all know about in our patients with alopecia areata. So let's turn now and talk about methotrexate. Methotrexate is an oral as well as injectable medication, but it's often used as an oral medication for more advanced forms of alopecia areata. And it's used in children, it's used in adults. And so when I think of mild alopecia areata, 
in children and pediatric patients, there's no doubt about it that topical steroids are at the top of the list. But when we have advanced cases of alopecia areata, topical steroids do not help very much. The options in more severe alopecia areata include oral steroids, immunotherapy with difenciprone, squaric acid, anthralin, methotrexate, and an accumulating body of literature suggesting that maybe we should be including JAK inhibitors on that list as well. And so methotrexate has been a first-line agent in very advanced cases of alopecia areata for quite some time. You know, we've, we've just started using JAK inhibitors for three years, four years in children. We've been using it for five or six years in adults, but not that long in children. But methotrexate's been around for decades, and it's been used in children and adolescents for a very long time. So what do we know about methotrexate in children? Well, we know it can be helpful, and we'll come back to that literature in just a minute. But I'd like to review a new study by Elbella and colleagues. This was a study looking at the potential benefits of methotrexate in children. It was a retrospective study of pediatric patients seen between January 2019 and December 2020. And this was a study of 13 pediatric patients. Six males, seven females. Twelve patients had moderate to severe alopecia areata, and one had alopecia areata involving just under 50% of the scalp. The mean age of patients was about nine years of age, but they ranged from four to 16. And the time interval between the diagnosis of alopecia areata and starting methotrexate was three years ranging from eight months to nine years. And that's pretty typical. When alopecia areata starts, we often start with in children with topical steroids, topical minoxidil. Sometimes it grows back. Three, four, eight months later, it comes out, it falls out again in some children. We start topical steroids again. It might grow back. If it doesn't, we might consider a steroid pulse. Um, we might consider immunotherapy with squaric acid or DPCP. It might grow back. It might fall out again. And so it takes time often before we start methotrexate. And so in this study, it took an average of about three years before methotrexate was started. Of course, many of these children probably had some regrowth and then some relapse and some regrowth. But all children in this study had failed conventional first-line treatments like topical steroids, oral steroids, minoxidil, and immunotherapy with squaric acid. And so methotrexate was started in these 13 patients. Three patients had oral steroids started at the same time for the first month, which is a common protocol. Some children continued with squaric acid immunotherapy at the same time they received methotrexate, and that was the protocol in nine children. The dose of methotrexate was once weekly, and the dose was a range of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. One patient was lost to follow-up, so the authors had data only for 12 patients, and a successful response was identified in five of those 12 patients, so 42%. One had complete regrowth, three had almost complete regrowth, 
So about 33% of patients having very nice results, and one had partial regrowth. It took about four months between starting methotrexate and the time at which the regrowth was occurring at significant levels. Five patients had good, had you know, somewhat good regrowth, but seven did not. Seven patients were treatment failures. Patients tolerated methotrexate quite well. There were no serious side effects. Blood tests remained normal in these patients. I think that's really important relating to the good safety short-term of methotrexate. So methotrexate is very much on the list of treatments for alopecia areata in children. A very nice study in JAD, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, in June reviews the treatments for alopecia areata in children. You may want to check that out by Barton and colleagues, titled Treatment of Pediatric Alopecia Areata, a Systematic Review. And so this particular study looks at all the treatments for alopecia areata in children, and when you look at the data for methotrexate in that study, Barton and colleagues show that about 65.8% of children have some kind of a response to methotrexate, positive response. There were eight articles comprising about 42 patients. And here's the key information. About 18% of patients in the pediatric age group had a complete response to methotrexate based on all of these eight studies and about 50% had partial responses. So almost two-thirds of patients have some kind of a good response to methotrexate in the pediatric group. And so methotrexate is an option for children and adults with more advanced alopecia areata. It may be that complete responses or full regrowth is a little bit more common in adults than in children, at least based on a meta-analysis by Fan and colleagues in 2019 in the JAD. That's one difference between children and adults. Adults are a little more likely to have a complete response. But the other important difference is that children are a little bit less likely to relapse. And so methotrexate, when you stop it and taper it, relapses are a bit more common in adults. And so methotrexate is very much on the list of treatments for alopecia areata in children, along with immunotherapy with squaric acid and DPCP, along with prednisone and dexamethasone, and JAK inhibitors are right there on the list as well, deserving more study. So for methotrexate, let's turn to JAK inhibitors. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about JAK inhibitors. June 13th, 2022, is a day that goes down in history, and I'm probably going to refer to that date many, many times, because that was the date that baricitinib was approved for alopecia areata in adults in the United States for severe cases of alopecia areata. But we have several JAK inhibitors that are on the market. They're sitting in the pharmacies. They may not be approved for alopecia areata, but they're used for alopecia areata. That includes the tofacitinib, which is a very 
Non-specific JAK inhibitor, a PAN-JAK, inhibits mainly JAK1 and JAK3. Baricitinib is an inhibitor of JAK1 and JAK2. Ruxolitinib is an inhibitor of JAK1 and JAK2. But we have upadacitinib. And upadacitinib is a more specific inhibitor of JAK1, and there's a lot of JAK1 inhibitor drugs coming out being studied. We'll hear a lot more about those more specific JAK1 inhibitor drugs. But upadacitinib is approved for moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis. It got its approval in 2019 for patients that don't respond to TNF inhibitors. And in 2021, it was approved for psoriatic arthritis in patients that don't respond to TNF inhibitors. And in 2022, upadacitinib had three FDA approvals, atopic dermatitis in 12 and over. So pediatric patients, adolescents, had a, an approval for upadacitinib for atopic dermatitis, ulcerative colitis, and ankylosing spondylitis, again, in patients that don't respond to TNF inhibitors. So upadacitinib is very much used for all these inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. Is it helpful in alopecia areata? Well, you can imagine that it is because we're talking about it today. So I'd like to review some really important data about upadacitinib in alopecia areata, this JAK1 inhibitor. So there's been four studies published in the past year or two showing that upadacitinib can help patients with more advanced forms of alopecia areata. In three of these studies, the patient had atopic dermatitis, or eczema, and they were using upadacitinib for both the eczema and it happened to help the alopecia areata. But in one patient, it was used just for alopecia areata and it helped. So let's take a look at these four studies together. Beginning at the 2021 study, which was the first study by Gambardella, this was published in Dermatitis. These authors described two patients with alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis who responded to apatacitinib. The first patient was a 30-year-old man with severe atopic dermatitis and a, a five-year history of alopecia universalis, and it was resistant to conventional treatment. The patient had been treated previously with cyclosporin with only a partial response, and then in June of 2018, he began treatment with dupilumab. This is this monoclonal antibody targeting IL-4 and IL-13. He had a good response with dupilumab for his dermatitis, but at week 28, he had a flare involving the face and neck area. And this rash in the face and neck was not responsive to topical and systemic steroids, so he stopped dupilumab and he began upadacitinib. And after four months of therapy, he had a complete remission of his eczema and his scalp hair, eyelash hair, eyebrow hair, beard hair regrew. So one of the first studies showing upadacitinib's benefit in a patient with atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. Now, the second patient in that study was a 42-year-old woman with alopecia areata, again with severe atopic dermatitis. She also had asthma. 
her atopic dermatitis had been treated with narrowband UVB, cyclosporin, azathioprine, and she had these areas of alopecia areata on the vertex. It wasn't complete alopecia areata, but a SALT score of 43. Dupilumab was started, but at week 18 into therapy, there was no improvement of the eczema. And so dupilumab was stopped. She was switched to upadacitinib, 30 milligrams daily. And after four months of therapy, she had a complete clinical response. And the hair growth on the vertex improved. Very nice study in 2021, which sort of led the way showing that upadacitinib can be helpful in alopecia areata. And so in 2022, we have three studies. Cantelli was a study published in Dermatologic Therapy, which was a study from Italy of a 24-year-old patient with atopic dermatitis, long-standing atopic dermatitis, and 10 years of alopecia areata. He had failed topical steroids, systemic therapies like cyclosporin, corticosteroids. He had very severe atopic dermatitis, and he was started on dupilumab. And a lot of these studies... With eczema, patients are started on dupilumab because dupilumab is, is approved for atopic dermatitis. But at four months, he had some improvement. But again, he developed some scaly lesions on the head and neck and became recalcitrant to treatment with dupilumab and had this red face with dupilumab. It's very similar to the other patient. And so dupilumab was stopped. He was started on upadacitinib, 30 milligrams a day. And he had an improvement in his atopic dermatitis and an improvement in his alopecia areata. In the International Journal, Journal of Dermatology, ASFOR published a 59-year-old patient with alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis that again had an improvement. This was Rod Sinclair's group. And so it was a patient with long-standing alopecia areata, 35-year history of alopecia areata, including the frontal temporal hairline and eyebrows. Um, looked very similar to frontal fibrosing alopecia, but it was alopecia areata. And the patient had severe atopic dermatitis and was treated with baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor baricitinib. Baricitinib helped the alopecia areata and the atopic dermatitis somewhat, but she had side effects, headaches, herpes simplex infections, fatigue, and so baricitinib was stopped and she was switched to upadacitinib. The dose isn't given in this study, but usually it's 30 milligrams a day, but the authors didn't include the dose. But after four weeks of treatment, the eczema cleared, the atopic dermatitis cleared, and hair started growing in these patches in the frontal hairline and around the ears. And at eight weeks of follow-up, she's doing very well and tolerating it well and, and getting hair growth. So this was the fourth patient with upadacitinib showing an improvement in alopecia areata. And finally, in the International Journal of Dermatology by Gori and colleagues, we have a 25-year-old male with alopecia universalis who had complete regrowth, nearly complete regrowth, with upadacitinib, 30 milligrams a day. He had previously been on difenciprone, oral cyclosporin, methotrexate, intramuscular triamcinolone. But this patient didn't have atopic dermatitis. He had alopecia areata, 
and the authors tried methotrexate, tried cyclosporin, tried intramuscular triamcinolone, tried DPCP, and said, what can we try next? Let's try upadacitinib. And so showing a very nice response. So these are really challenging to treat cases of alopecia areata. Failing cyclosporin, failing methotrexate, failing steroids, failing DPCP. And they've had a response to upadacitinib. So I think this is really interesting. We have tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib, and we have upadacitinib coming up on that list saying, I want to be a fourth bonafide member of the JAK inhibitor group that can help alopecia areata, alopecia totalis, alopecia universalis, etc. So I think this is really important. Tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, upadacitinib are off-label uses. They're not approved for alopecia areata, but they're approved for these other indications, and so they're off-label. Baricitinib is the only FDA-approved drug we have for severe alopecia areata in adults. One of the unique benefits of upadacitinib is that it has been studied for 12 and older for atopic dermatitis, and so there's data there. The other JAKs haven't been studied quite as well in children yet, although there are case series, and there's good data suggesting that it helps children. There's good data with tofacitinib. But upadacitinib has this approval. And so when I have children and adults with alopecia areata that, and atopic dermatitis or eczema, if it's a few patches, we do steroid injections, topical steroids, just like we would do in a patient without eczema. But the more and more we have refractory cases of alopecia areata and more advanced forms with 40% loss, 60% loss, 80% loss, totalis, universalis, if the patient has atopic dermatitis, I'm thinking to myself, what treatment can help atopic dermatitis and what treatment can help alopecia areata? Those include methotrexate. Those include cyclosporin. And those include dupilumab. And those include upadacitinib. Dupilumab and upadacitinib have these approvals for atopic dermatitis. So we have this expanding array of treatments for alopecia areata. I think this is a very exciting time. These are the early days. I think these areas are very exciting. We need to you know, counsel patients about side effects. We need to monitor patients, but patients often tolerate these treatments quite well. And the data here for upadacitinib approval in children is very important, and I am using off-label JAK inhibitors in children, and that includes tofacitinib. But here we have the potential to use upadacitinib, and certainly the non-JAK inhibitor, the IL-4, IL-13 drug, dupilumab, is also used in some cases in children as well. So that's it for this week. We've talked about Two studies in the androgenetic hair loss realm. We've talked about the relationship between smoking and hair loss and the mechanisms by which smoking is thought to cause hair loss and the fact that smoking may increase the risk of hair loss and the risk of early onset hair loss and perhaps graying of hair as well. We talked about IFIS, the intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. It's most famous for tamsulosin, but 
Finasteride seems to be a drug on the list of drugs that cause IFIS. And various studies with good data and multivariate analysis have said finasteride is a drug that causes IFIS. I think it's important for us to know about, as we know about the studies and the side effects of finasteride. Then we talked about alopecia areata and some very interesting data linking alopecia areata and eye diseases. And this is the second of these nice studies published in the last 12 months in the JAD, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, showing that patients are at increased risk for these various eye diseases. And I think we need to know about this and appreciate the systemic nature of alopecia areata. I think that's really, really important. Patients with alopecia areata are at risk for eye diseases. They are at risk for cardiovascular disease. That's the latest data. They are at risk for diseases of the nail. They are at risk for thyroid diseases. They are at risk for atopic dermatitis. And they are at risk for some other autoimmune diseases as well. And we talked about methotrexate in children and this nice systematic review, which was published this month in the JAD, which gives us some numbers, and that's about two-thirds of children can have some positive responses to methotrexate, 17%, 18% having complete responses, and 47, 48% having partial responses. So in advanced alopecia areata in children, methotrexate is very much on the list. We have two, three, four years of data with the JAK inhibitors. We have decades of data with methotrexate. And so each practitioner needs to decide their comfort level and, and what the data means to them and, and whether methotrexate is an option for the pediatric patient in front of them with advanced alopecia areata. Is a pulse steroid regimen the right way to go? Is difensiprone antherlin squaric acid an appropriate treatment for children? That treatment is very much part of my clinic, but seems to be falling out of favor around the world, unfortunately. But certainly in a pediatric alopecia areata clinic, we use methotrexate, we use JAK inhibitors, we use oral steroids, we use DPCP, we use squaric acid, we use anthralin, we use oral minoxidil, we use topical steroids under occlusion. I think these are all still very much a part of the treatment protocols for children. And then we talked about upadacitinib in alopecia areata, this JAK1 inhibitor, which is FDA approved now for a variety of indications, including rheumatoid arthritis, including psoriatic arthritis, including ulcerative colitis, including ankylosing spondylitis. Four studies in the literature showing a benefit for upadacitinib in alopecia areata. I think that's really exciting. Not only the the four patients that had atopic dermatitis and were also having alopecia areata, but the one patient that had only alopecia universalis, no atopic dermatitis, and had a nice benefit. So I think we'll be hearing a lot more about upadacitinib as well, the JAK inhibitor upadacitinib. So that is it for this week. I want to thank you very much for joining me this week and for joining me every Monday as we talk about the latest research in the field of hair loss. Next week, we're back. It's the second Monday of the month of July next week, and we'll be talking about the four T's, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. 
If you'd like to reach us anytime, please contact our team. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks again for joining me this week.